0: that we've been going through Genesis. And today we're going to turn our attention to the man known as Isaac in chapter 26 of Genesis. And you can turn there and just put your finger there. We're going to get to the book of chapter 26 in a little while. Um, you probably remember um, Isaac over the last few weeks. We've hit on him a couple times already. He's the son of Abraham, the father of Jacob. And here's an interesting thing about the book of Genesis. Thirteen chapters in Genesis are devoted to telling the story about Abraham the the, lead, the first patriarch, the one God selects to begin the nation of Israel. Thirteen chapters are devoted to him, and so we spent a ton of time on Abraham. And then, after Isaac, his son Jacob, comes on the scene, and in the book of Genesis, he has almost ten chapters devoted to him. But when we come to Isaac, this guy sandwiched in the middle, the second in the line, the son of promise that Abraham waited a hundred years for, there's only really two chapters that he's even really involved in. Chapter 24, we've looked at it over the last couple of weeks, and we saw it wasn't really about him, but it was about the selection of his wife. And so we saw in Chapter 24 um, him being introduced. And now in Chapter 26 today, uh, we come to the one chapter that's really devoted to the life of Isaac. And you could kind of look at that and say 13 chapters for one, 10 chapters for the other, really one and a little bit of a chapter for this guy. Maybe this guy's not that important. Maybe we don't have to really think about about Isaac. Well, I'd like to tell you I don't think that's true. Um, you know what? There's a lot of people in the church that say I'm not important because there's not a lot of press given to them. doesn't mean anything. There's something funny about the Bible. It says the last will be first and the first will be last. And so um, uh, sometimes a person says I don't, I'm not all that valuable because I'm not in the limelight. Well, guess what? Being in the limelight it's not all it's cracked up to be. Um, God has all kinds of people who aren't in the limelight. And this guy... Is one of them. He, there's not a whole lot written about him. One thing good is that means he didn't do a whole lot wrong. <laughs> Sometimes a lot written about you, sees you means you messed up a lot. And uh, God didn't have anything to write about him, for one thing, too much, because he was just a rock-solid rock solid man for the most part. So we have this man that we've been introduced to over the last couple of weeks, Isaac. You know, again, the child of Abraham, the child of the promise, an important man, one who, who carries on the family line, um, who who begins the development of the nation of Israel, the one who's going to lay hands on his son Jacob and bless him to carry on the family line. And when I think about Isaac, I think of a person who's incredibly important, a great figure in in the development of, of the people of God. And there really is it a lot of stuff that we can learn from him. As a matter of fact, in this one chapter alone, I was tempted to, to preach two sermons about him, but I want to condense it in the one because there's, Kind of uh, so much about him that we have to handle who he is kind of in two chunks today. We're going to do it all in one day, but there's going to be kind of two ways I want to approach looking at Isaac today. And the first chunk I want to look at today is what I want to call for you the the Andy Rooney chunk. Who knows who Andy Rooney is? He's the guy at the end of 60 Minutes. Who doesn't know who Andy Rooney is? You know, 60 Minutes, uh, some of you actually watch news on TV, and, uh, um, and, and you know, it's a great show, and, and on that show, the, Andy Rooney's the guy at the end. He's the kind of little guy who sits and whines at the end, right? And he says, like, did you ever think about, you know, have you ever considered? Does that sound kind of like Andy Rooney a little bit, right? And that's what, that's what he does, He says, have you ever noticed? And he makes observations about life. He makes observations. I was talking to this about with some of the staff, and one said, Yeah, he makes, said, I don't really like him. He makes observations like about vacation and says, Have you ever one, noticed that you come back from vacation more tired than you started? You know, and he just makes observations about life. I could also say he's kind of like a Jerry Seinfeld who just notices the things of, of life and, and comments on them. Well, I want to start off looking at Isaac with kind of an Andy Rooney chunk where I just want to, to um, kind of point out some things to you, make some observations about Isaac's life that are really interesting observations and ones that I hope will maybe stir something up inside of you that will cause you to then look further into that idea. That cause you to say, well, you know what, I hadn't thought of that before. Or maybe I have, but it's a good reminder today and we're not going to get into any depth on them, but something to kind of stir your heart up to make you look more deeply in the future. And then when we're done with the, the Andy Rooney section... We're going to look at some uh, things that are revealed in the life of Isaac that are some spiritual necessities that are symbolically represented from his life in this text. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time. So you got it? Andy Rooney? You ready for Andy Rooney? I'm not going to do his voice again. The first one, grab your Bible. Chapter 26. I'm going to read the text first, and then I'm going to make an observation about three different things that are just observations about the life of Isaac ones that I think are incredibly important. Chapter 26, let's start with verses 6 through 9. It says, So Isaac lived in Gerar. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say, My wife, thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Here's a question that rises as soon as I read that story, as soon as you probably have heard that story today. Um, Does that story sound familiar to you? When did we hear that same story before? His dad. His father Abraham had done the exact same thing two times in his life. Now, I've got to say one thing. First of all, these guys must have had some extraordinarily beautiful wives. That everywhere they go, they're so afraid their wives are so beautiful they're going to get killed on account of them. And so uh, they have some extraordinary beautiful wives. And he does something that his dad did. Now, here's, my, uh, here's the Andy Rooney observation. First observation, it's this. Your children do what you do, not what you say. Your children will do what you do, not what you say. Isaac, he learned to worship, he learned to obey, and he learned to lie from his dad. That's that's the moral of the story. He learned to worship, he learned to obey God, and he learned to lie from watching his dad live his life. When Isaac got into a pinch, thinking they're going to kill me because my wife is so beautiful, he did what he had seen his dad do. He lied to save his own neck. He lied saying, eh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Thinking that she's, they think she's my wife, they're going to kill me and take her to be their wife. Now here's the, here's the application for us. Do you want your kids or your grandkids or kids that you influence to have the same kind of spiritual life that you have? This is kind of a a stand-up and and wake-up moment. Do you want your kids to live the spiritual life that you're currently living? Or are you saying, no, do what I say, not what I do? Because if you say, do what I say, not what I do, they still do what you do. And that's what we learned from looking at Isaac, who who looked at Abraham. That for good or for bad, our children are influenced by what we do. And we ask ourselves, do we want our children to have the same priorities in their lives as we have in our lives whether it be worldly priorities spiritual priorities do we want to have the same priorities have the same actions respond in the same ways as we do I hope what we say is I need to alter maybe what I do so that how I act not just what I say so that my kids growing up my grandkids growing up see me and say I want to do what you do not just do what you say does that make sense? You see, you know what our goal in parenting is, our goal in, our goal in grandparenting? You know what? And as a church family, one of the blessed things about the church family is that God brings people in, and you know what? There's something true about the world. Families are fractured. And God brings people in that sometimes they have kids and they don't have a, a mom in the house or dad in the house. We get to be the family. We get to influence them. I, I point that out every time we do a, a baby dedication. We get to, to help those children develop. And you know what our goal in helping children develop is? It's not to get them to obey. I think in Christian circles especially, especially conservative Christian circles, we think our job is to get people, kids to obey. So they're like little robots. Shut up and do what I tell you to do. You know what? That is not your goal in parenting or grandparenting. You know what our goal is? It's to help them to develop, to become. To become men and women with hearts after God. And you know the primary way they develop into a man or a woman with a heart after God? A man or a woman who's rock solid serving Jesus? is they follow the example of the people who lived before them. And so the first observation at the Andy Rooney observation is, you know what, your kids will do what you do. They'll prioritize what you prioritize. All right? That's number one. First observation Andy Rooney would make. Number two, go back to Genesis chapter 26. I'm going to read a little longer section this time from verse 12 all the way to verse 22. It says, Now Isaac sowed in the land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy, freed possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines, stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Isaac because they contended with him. Then they dug another well and they quarreled over it too. So its name was Sitna. And he moved away from there and dug another well and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth and said to them, At last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. Observation number two, looking at that, and it's this. Life isn't fair, but don't let that get you bitter. Instead, let it make you better. Life is not fair. You know what? Life wasn't fair for Isaac at all. Think of it. This is his real life. It's all summed up in a couple of verses, but this is his real life. He was forced to move from the area he had settled in because he was just too blessed by God. They said, You're so blessed, we don't want you around here anymore. And then he puts, as he moves, he puts great effort into redigging the wells of his father, the ones his father had early, originally dug. He has his servants dig them out again. They find flowing water. And the local shepherds, once he finds water, they didn't dig the wells. He digs the wells. They find water. And they kick him out of the area and say, no, 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 that's our water. And he goes to another place and he digs another well. And they kick him out and he goes to another place and dig another well. But here's what I want you to notice about Isaac in this story. That's why I think God didn't have to write a lot of chapters about him. Because he responded right. Isaac didn't get mad. I'm sure he was frustrated, but he didn't get mad. He didn't start a war, which he could have. He just moves on and looks for a new place, and this is what he said he's looking for. He's looking for a place where there's room enough for me. And he gets to the spot where he finally digs another well. They find water, and no one contends with him there. And he says, finally, I found a place where there's room enough for me. He wasn't fighting everybody around him. When conflict happened and and wars are obvious, and he said, if I stay here and I I stand my ground and say, I've got my rights, a war is going to transpire. He said, I don't want to do that. He said, I'm just going to find a place where there's room enough for me. Isaac learned that life wasn't fair, but even though life wasn't fair, the difficulties of life didn't make him bitter. He got better. And guess what, church? Things won't be fair in your life easier, easier. Teenagers, guess what? Just settle it now. Life's not fair. You know how many times you say to mom and dad, well, that's not fair. Guess what? It's not. Life's not fair. Whoever told you it was. This book doesn't say it is. Maybe a problem, a problem we have in our parenting and in our world is we try to make it fair. It's not fair. Here's the deal. Life's not fair. You don't always get a, a good deck. Sometimes a good, a good hand dealt to you. Some people get a great hand. You say, everything's easy for them, but everything's been tough for me. That's just life. Life's not fair. Don't let yourself get bitter over that. Don't let yourself dwell on it and say, but, but so and so and so and so and it's easy for them and it didn't happen like this for them. Well, guess what? You're not them. Life's not fair. Number one, The real reality is you don't know what's going on in their life anyways because they're pointing at you at the same time and saying, but if only I was like them. Life's not fair. Don't let it get you bitter, get better. You know what you need to do in life knowing it's not fair? You need to learn to trust God. You need to learn to be a blessing. You need to learn to let go of anger. You need to learn to forgive. You need to learn how to love difficult people. You know what? Sometimes you say, how come life's not fair? I'm always surrounded by difficulty. God's trying to help you. He's trying to help you to learn how to love difficult people. And sometimes He's not going to take difficult people out of your life until you learn how to love difficult people. Because He loves you so much, He wants you to get better. And we look at it and say, well, God hates me because I keep having these things in my life. And he's like, no, I love you. That's why I'm allowing those things in your life to help you to develop and become. Learn how to love difficult people. You know what? Smile a lot more. You know what? One of the, one of the greatest inventions of ours is a rearview mirror. You know, you're driving down the road, you look in the mirror. What's, what's, what, what's on your face, a frown or a smile? Smile a lot more. We need to learn as Christians to enjoy the trip. Enjoy this trip called life. You know what? Life's not fair. Just deal with it. If you deal with it up front and say it's not supposed to be fair, then you don't get upset. Just learn to enjoy the trip and understand that God has you right in the palm of his hand and he's going to take care of you along the way. Amen? Amen. So I think it's the second thing that Andy Rooney would observe about this text. Look Look at number three. Observation number three. Chapter 26. Verse 26 to 28. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with the advisor and commander of his army. You can pronounce their names yourself. (laughs) And Isaac said to them, (laughs) Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you. Observation number three, If you walk with God, then other people will see God's reality in your life. If you walk with God, other people will see that the God that you serve is real. Abimelech could see plainly that God was blessing Isaac. And so he knew that that Isaac's God was real. Friends, what a privilege we have to let the reality of God shine through our lives. The Bible says like this, it says this, that we're a light. We're supposed to be set on a hill to shine, not put a basket over us. And the way that light shines is through our character and our our realities, but a great way it shines is that we allow people to see what God is doing in and through us. And I challenge you, don't hide what God is doing in and through you, because it will convince others that God is real. And here's what you need to understand about the world we live in. People desperately hope that God is real. They're desperately hoping that what you say is really true, even if they're a little cantankerous to you. Because they know they want what you have if they can see that it's real. And eventually they'll come around. So let your light shine. You know what? We get the privilege of being advertisements for God. We get that privilege of being like billboards who walk around and we, see, we shine the goodness of God. Let it shine. Because it's an incredible privilege to be a representative of the Lord. Amen? Three things that you just observe that you can take and and uh, think more deeply on in the future. And I'm going to try to do this last half kind of quick because um, we've got a lot of extra stuff in our service today. But I don't want to skip it. I was tempted. Before church started, I said, Lord, we've got OCS presentation, we've got this stuff. How about if I do this in two sections? But here's what I've learned a long time ago. Unless God really dramatically directs me to do something in a service, I always go with the plan I felt plan- that God led me to in my study. So we're going to get to this part too because I think there's part of this that's going to minister uniquely to some people that are in here today. And I felt that as I was praying for people today. So, so hang on, we'll try to, I'll try to do this all in about 15 minutes, this last part. For the rest of our time together today, we're going to look at something else that we learned from, from the life of Isaac. Look at verse, chapter 26. We're going to read just two verses. It says that the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. understand this is, this is Isaac having a vision from God. I'm the God of your father Abraham, do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he, being Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servant dug a well. Stop right there. I want to focus on these verses because I think there's something going on in these verses that can help us. That doesn't really have to do with the reality of what he's doing, but has more to do with uh, some some symbolic significance that represents spiritual necessities for any one of us who desire to live lives that are victorious um, in Christ. So there's some things that we see here in his life that he did that I think really do have this symbolic significance that represents some things that we should do in our lives if we want to be people like Isaac, who God doesn't maybe have to write whole chapters about how we blew it. And he just says about, about our life, this guy just did it right. And it doesn't take 12 chapters to say it. you know. And um, that's, that's a great compliment when, that, when life happens that way. So there's some things that he did in his life that I really think are spiritually significant. It says this in verse 25. It says he did three things. It says I, that Isaac built an altar there, and he called upon the name of the Lord, and he pitched a tent there, and that Isaac's servants dug a well. And I want to look at these three things. He built an altar, he pitched a tent, and he dug a well. Because I think there's some real important spiritual symbolism here that gives us some direction about some things that should be really key in our lives. You see, Isaac just had an encounter with God. That's the story going on. He has this encounter with God. He has kind of an Abraham-type experience where, where God shows up and says, I'll bless those who bless you. If you do what I say, I'll make a nation out of you. That's the kind of experience he just has with God. And, he, and, and God just reaffirms his promise to bless him and to multiply him. And the first thing he does in response to this encounter with God is that he builds an altar and he worships. You know, and that's the first thing I want us to think about today. See, an altar, what we know about an altar is that it's a place of worship. And that's what he did. But you know what? He goes beyond that. He goes beyond just worshiping. And he, he, because um, ultimately an altar is not just about worship. He goes beyond worshiping and he does what an altar is all about. An altar speaks of a place of dedication. That's really what an altar is all about. You know why? It's a place of dedication. Because what really happens at an altar? We say we worship. But what really happens at an altar in the Old Testament? You kill things. An altar is a place that the lamb is dedicated at the altar. You ever think about that when you do dedication? It's dedicated. It's it's sacrifice. It's killed. The lamb doesn't ever walk away. The, tur- the turtle doves that were, were, that were offered for Jesus uh, a, a little while after he was born, were, they didn't fly away. They were killed. An altar is a place of ultimate dedication. When it says that he has this encounter with God and he builds an altar, he didn't just sing a few songs and go home. Because we think of altars, sometimes we, we miss the point. We think of altars as just, hey, he came to church and he had a couple worship songs and, and uh, you know, Suzanne and Mitch and the rest of you guys, Gary, you all played your instruments and Josh, you played and we sang and then and, and we had an altar time. You know, we, we worship, but we will not beyond that. He took the time to construct an altar and devote himself to God. You know, one more time in his life he chooses to set himself aside and commit to God. And friends, that's what an altar is all about. An altar is all about a place where you dedicate yourself. And Isaac knew all about altars. Maybe more than anybody else in the whole world has ever known about altars. Because when he was 13 years old, God took this young man, tied his dad did rather, took and tied him up and laid him on an altar. And his dad lifted up a knife, could have plunged a knife into his heart in a sign of ultimate dedication. And he heard the voice of God say, don't do it. Stop, I know that you would do it now. And he saw the ram stuck in the bush. And it was a replacement. He understood what altars were about. He understood they were places of ultimate commitment. And friends, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, 1, says something about altar life to you and me that applies to us. It says this in Romans 12, 1. It says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a living sacrifice that goes in an altar holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And some of your translations say your reasonable service of worship. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice, living on an altar of dedication to God. And that's, you know, we got a unique challenge. We're alive and free. We're supposed to crawl up on the altar every day and say, I dedicate myself fresh. Remember, that's what Isaac understood. You understood an altar is a place to die. It's a place of ultimate dedication. We crawl back on that altar. And I ask, our, I ask myself, I ask you today, what about us today? Are we offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God? Have we said, Lord, you know what? I dedicate my life to you, to living for Christ as a living sacrifice. That God is not all about me. We live in a world that says it's all about us. And God wants us to get, when it's all about us, life is not fulfilling, it's not satisfied, and it goes nowhere and it's not influencing anybody around us. But if we'll crawl on the altar, we say, God, it's not about me, it's about you. God will birth things in us and do things through us. And he'll kill things in us that will make us to be more like Jesus and make us more effective and more blessed than we ever imagined. Isaac lived on the altar and God said, I'll bless you beyond measure. You know what? That's the first thing he did. He has an encounter with God. And He builds an altar. He dedicates his life to the Lord. something that we need to do if we want to advance spiritually in our lives. But he didn't stop there. He did. He did a, in symbolic significance. He builds an altar, but it's something else. second thing he did, it says, you'd say, well, "What's this got to do with spiritual life?" I think it's really important. He says he built an altar and it said he pitched a tent. He has an encounter with God. and the first thing he does, he builds an altar, and he, he worships in devotion and dedication, and then he pitches a tent. And I think there's a few things that reveals about him that he has this encounter with God, and the first thing he does is build an altar, and then he pitches a tent. The first thing it reveals, I think, is that he wanted to stay in the place where God had spoke to him. He wanted to dwell right there. He pitches his tent. He wanted to stay connected to God, close to God. But notice something about his desire to stay close to God. And This is important. I think it says it on purpose. It says he pitched a tent. It didn't say he built the house. If you would have went to King Abimelech, he lived in a house. The other people around them lived in houses. The Philistines lived in houses. But it says that he pitched a tent. Sometimes what we do when we have an encounter with God is we build a house. We say, I'm there, everything's going to stay exactly the same. He didn't do that. He said he pitched a tent after he had this encounter with God. You know why it's so important that he pitched a tent? Not that he just wanted to stay connected, but a tent speaks of detachment. A tent speaks of detachment not from God, but detachment from the world. See, the reason Isaac was in Beersheba was because this is where God had been speaking to him. God had brought him there, the text says, but if, but if God's presence should move and lead him elsewhere, Isaac was in a tent. He's ready to tear it down and move on. And friends, here's another sign of his, of his dedication to God. His home. Remember it said about him? It said he was rich. Rich men don't usually live in tents. Rich men usually live in palaces. But it was a commitment to his dedication to God. His home was not some bricks and mortar geographical location where he put down these deep roots and said, I'm there to stay. His home was where God and his will were to be found. He said, I want to stay connected to God, so I'm mobile in a sense. Spiritually, I'm mobile. You know, a a tent speaks of detachment from the stuff of the world. And friends, I think it's an incredible spiritual principle we can learn from Isaac. Because I think this is something that we really need to wrestle with, especially in our culture, where we love to put down deep roots. As Christians, we need to understand a truth from the Scriptures, and one that we often don't like, but it's, but it's true nonetheless. That as believers in Christ, we are simply pilgrims passing through this world, which is passing away. And in order to pass through and walk with God, we must remain detached From In a sense, detached from the things of this world because our hearts belong to another kingdom. We've got to say, God, these things in the world are okay, but I can't be so consumed by them that I miss out on you, that I don't move with you, God, because here's where I want to be and here's what I have and here's what I want to establish. And God says, I hear a lot of eyes in that, but I'm saying, I want you to follow me. And that doesn't always mean follow him in a sense of moving to a new place. It means following him with your heart following Him into whatever He asks, following Him into new ministries, following Him to be stretched. I hear people say this, well, I won't ever do that because I'm just afraid or that makes me intimidated. Guess what, friends? Serving God's all about being afraid and intimidated. Serving God's all about being stretched beyond where you are today. It's about living in a tent. Living in a tent says I'm flexible. Living in a tent says I'm detached. Now go where you want me to go, God. I'll do what you want me to do. It's speaking of a detachment from the things that hold you down and saying I want to go forward. Some of you, in your heart, you want to advance with God. But fear keeps you from going any further. You say, I really think there's dreams and visions God has given me, but that won't happen because then I'd have to do something that's against my character. I'd have to, I'd have to stand up in front of people. I'd have to talk to my neighbor. I'd have to do whatever. I'd have to give beyond where it hurts. And you say, I won't go there. Well, guess what? Isaac lived in a tent. He said, "I choose to live in a way that I'm detached from anything else. I'll go and do whatever God wants me to do." That's a spiritual principle for advancement. There, you don't want to know the truth? This is the truth. you would say it's absolutely not true. If I had my choice, I would be the guy in the kitchen, who never, who never stood up in front of a congregation. You know, you got a pastor who's dyslexic, who is in special ed because he couldn't read. You know who uh, has all kinds of struggles, who my greatest fear was public speaking in my entire life. And God said, and, and my, break, my biggest weakness is, is reading. And I stand up in front of people every week and I read. That's what I do. I read. You know, one time I had to, for years, I was what was called the, the um, resolutions chairman for our district. I was the guy who went to council, district council, and had to read all these 10-page resolutions. I think God chose me on purpose. I made a promise with God. I would always live in a tent. I would go where you want me to go. And I said, I wouldn't say no to things I thought were of you. And I was asked by Pastor Joel Pavia, the interim pastor here. He was superintendent and asked me to do it. And I said, why me? He said, I think God wants you to. God did want me to. I had to fast 21 days, honest to God truth, 21 days to go to district council and stand up in front of all my peers and read but you know what? I said, God, I'll never let fear stop me. It's a commitment in my life. I will never be, uh, if something makes me afraid, I'll be more apt to run into it head first. Not because I'm some thrill seeker, but because I don't want to live in a house that holds me back. I want to live in a tent that caused me to go forward. And I distinctly remember, and I'm saying this for some of you who let fear stop you, I distinctly remember standing there in front of hundreds of my peers having to read these long things. Pastor Bruce, you were probably a and didn't even know what was going on. And I'm reading it, and I'm in the middle of a 21-day fast because I'm scared to death to stand up there and read. And I had an encounter with God as I'm reading a boring resolution at district council. And God says to me, your greatest weakness has become your strength. And I had an eye-opening revelation. I go, wow, the thing that I thought was my weakness has become my strength, and now I can't do a sermon. People know, my staff knows, you can mess with me in any way. You touch my sermon notes, and I'll fire you tomorrow. <laughs> and that's that serious because I depend, on the, I depend on the on my notes now, which in a time past I would have said, no, the way I'd function is I'd just stand up there and fly, fly free because I'm afraid to read. I didn't plan on saying this to you today. I think there's somebody out there, some of you, who are saying, fear keeps me back, and you're living in your house, you're, you're putting down roots in your life, so to speak, and God wants you to take you to a new place. But to go to a new place, you've got to follow Him. You've got to be detached from some of those things that hold you down. Now, I know it's tough. It's tough, especially in a land of abundance, to let go and say, I'm going to let go of these temporal things. Anybody ever hear of a missionary named Jim Elliott? See the movie, At the End of the Spear? Goes out. Six, seven years ago, something like that. Jim Elliott was a, a missionary to the Alka Indians. And he wrote something, I think it's one of my favorite quotes in the whole world, and some of you know it before I ever say it. He wrote this. They found it in his writings after he had, been, he had been murdered for the cause of Christ. He wrote in his, in his journal one day, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, that's taking a proper view of detachment. It's not holding on to temporary stuff in order to have our hands free to grasp hold of what is eternal. Church, understand this world is passing away. Don't hold on to it too tightly. We are walking toward our real home, which is heaven. And that's what this life is all about. We're walking towards our real home, which is heaven. Isaac understood that. He said, in this world, I'm just going to live in a tent. I'm just going to be flexible and detached to follow and do whatever God wants me to do. That's the second thing with spiritual significance we see in there. And let's look quickly at the last one. One more symbolic thing that we find here in the life of Isaac. It says this, it says he dug a well. He built an altar, he pitched a tent, and he dug a well. What's a well all about? A well in their life was life or death. They lived in a desert. They didn't have Lake Michigan right next to them. They didn't have the Milwaukee River. They didn't have access to water. They couldn't just drive a a sand point down and get water. They lived in a desert. And a person who lives in a desert can't go far from a source of water. It couldn't go far from the source of water, which for them was a well. In their life, it was dig a well or die. Digging a well speaks of dependence. It speaks of dependence on that life-giving flow, that water for Isaac, it was a matter of life or death. It was a matter of digging or dying. He had to have water to live. And friends, in a spiritual sense, the same thing is true for you and I, concerning our connection to God and our lives. But the problem with it is that we don't recognize death. That you really recognize when you're, when you're away from water for a little while, how thirsty you become. But in a spiritual sense, we become, can, can become really thirsty and not recognize what we're feeling. We think, oh, I feel thirsty for God, but you don't know it's thirsty for God. You're away from the source for a while, and you think, I'm just dissatisfied with life. And so you buy a red sports car, men. Or ladies, you buy another dress, or you go on a cruise, or you're having an affair, or something else. You quit your job, and you say, There's got to be something to fill me up because I'm feeling so dry inside. The reality is, you just got away from the source. You got away from the well. And you know what I found? You can go to church and still get away from the well, you can come here and sing songs and still get away from the well friends this concept of digging or dying staying close to the source of life is same is it holds true for us today concerning our connection to god in our lives without a real fresh connection in our lives we are drying up and we can die spiritually and the sad thing is sometimes we can die spiritually and not even know it jesus said something alarming in the in the gospel of mark mark 4:4 4, 4, he said this He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He says, you don't just live because of physical stuff. You think if you have all your physical needs met, you'll be all right. But he says, you don't even live that way. He says, you need more than the physical. You need something from God. You You need every word that proceeds from his mouth, every blessing that flows from God. It's talking about a flow from God. And it's a spiritual well that we need for the child of God, for my life and for your life, friends, it's dig or die. We've got to dig wells too. It's dig or die. We can't thrive spiritually without spending time with God. We must recognize our very real dependence on Him. We have to understand how fragile spiritual life really is. That just like you can't walk away from a well in the, in the desert, in the wilderness for long without drying up, you can't walk away from God for long without drying up. The problem is you just don't recognize it often, what's going on in your life. You think you call it depression. You call it whatever, midlife, whatever. No, it's not. It's you've been walking from the well. And you walk from the well and you feel the results and sometimes the problem is we just don't understand what it is. We can't thrive spiritually without spending time with God at the well. We must recognize our very real dependence on Him. Friends, without regularly being in his presence, we dry up spiritually. You know what? That's why I worry when somebody disappears from church for a while. They say, oh, you're just worried about your attendance. No, I'm not. Because it doesn't matter if there's one of you here or a thousand of you here. I do the exact same thing. You know, I do the same thing on Sunday morning. We do the same things on Wednesday. I still pray the same. I still prepare on Thursdays the same. You know, I do all the same stuff if there's one person or 100 or 200 or 400. I do the same thing. You know why I, why I worry? Because I know when you're not here, you're probably drying up. And friends, we live in a world where we have, it is so easy to find a reason to do something else other than gathering together with other people of like precious faith. It's so easy. And you know what? And we've had a reaction. And I've been a great, great guy at leading the charge on this reaction. Susanna was raised in church where they were guilted to get to death. And every time the doors were open, you had to be there. And you dragged your kids everything. And I've always said, that's not you don't have to do that. But we can't go to the other extreme that says, you know what? Every reason in the world. You know what the big, one of the big ones is right now? And I've had to fight it because I've got two boys. And it's caused conflict in our house. Sports come up and they, every Sunday now. Sports were never on Sundays. Now they're on Sundays. And I worry about it because you know what I worry about? I'm not saying you can't play sports and serve God. I'm worried about this, that like we learned that, that Isaac learned to lie from his dad, that our kids will learn that church isn't important for mom and dad because they say, but I'm going to run around every week and they go somewhere else and not take a commitment to being in the house of the Lord. And you say, well, Pastor Mark, now you're meddling. Well, guess what? I'm meddling with good intentions. I want our kids to serve God. And there's some subtle ways that we can get distracted from that. And I think this idea that we are dependent on the presence of God needs to ring in our ears. That we really are dependent. That we really do dry up if we're not in the presence of God. And one of the great ways that God created, not man, for the presence of God to be renewed in our lives is for us to gather together with people of like precious faith and sing and worship and and be joyful and, and love each other and pray for each other. And as we do that... The water begins to flow in a spiritual sense in our lives, and we begin to be renewed day by day. Friends, Isaac knew he was dependent on the life giving water, and I hope we realize that we are just as dependent on the presence of God, that it's dig or die in our lives. That makes sense? Would you stand with me this morning?